Welcome to World Policy on Air, a weekly podcast from the pages and website of World Policy Journal, published by the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. I'm David Alpern. In this week's program, posted October 21st, 2016, we talk with award-winning Beirut-based columnist and commentator Rami G. Khoury about his article in the new WPJ Fall 2016 issue, The Citizen and the State, The Decline of Sovereignty in the Arab World. We'll also point out other top features in the new fall issue, cover theme, History's Ghosts. You're listening to World Policy on Air. Now this. What became known briefly as the Arab Spring began as a popular uprising in the streets of Tunisia despite violent government pushback. Similar protests erupted across the Middle East, bringing down autocratic rule in Egypt, Libya, and Yemen, seriously challenging governments in Syria and Bahrain. Yet only Tunisia went on to build a so far stable, credible, pluralistic, and constitutional democracy. Elsewhere in the region, we see the return of authoritarian rule, military and civilian, with inadequate governance, significant outside influence and actual intervention, seemingly endless local, regional and global proxy wars, terrorism and a humanitarian crisis even for those brave and lucky enough to move more or less out of harm's way. And those are just the surface symptoms of a deeper fundamental, not necessarily fundamentalist, problem, says noted Beirut-based journalist and commentator Rami G. Khoury. Accurately identifying what is really wrong in the Arab world and how to start fixing it is our great collective challenge and to date our collective failure, Khoury writes, in the new fall issue of World Policy Journal. His article is headlined, The Citizen and the State, The Decline of Sovereignty in the Arab World, and we discussed it recently for this podcast. Rami Khoury, welcome to World Policy on Air. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be with you. Syria and Iraq are the epicenter of today's troubled political reality in the Arab world, but you fear they may be just the tip of an iceberg. What's the worst case we might expect? The worst case is that what you're seeing in Syria and Iraq could actually spread across uh, maybe half a dozen other countries in the region, and already has in some cases. If you look at Somalia, if you look at Lebanon, you know, 20 years ago in the Civil War, parts of uh, Egypt and the northern Sinai, um, Libya, Yemen. uh, So there are worrying symptoms all across the region, even in stable countries like, you know, Jordan, Morocco, Kuwait, Saudi Arabia. There are worrying symptoms of underlying deep stresses, structural stresses, inequities, inequalities, disparities, and, and, and great human uh, suffering uh, and uh, discontent that affects millions and probably tens of millions of people across the region in different ways, political, economic, social, uh, sectarian. So the worst scenario is that the unraveling of stable uh, statehood that we have been witnessing in Iraq and Syria in the last uh, 10, 15 years, um, that this could actually 
happen in other countries uh, as well. And the reason is that the, the, the fundamental common underlying vulnerability across the whole Arab world, and this is an Arab problem, it's not about Islamic countries, it's not about the Middle East, because you don't see this in Iran or Turkey or Israel or other places. It's a distinctly Arab problem, and the common denominator is the uh, unachieved social contract between the citizen and the state, the, the nature of the exercise of public authority, the, the role of the government, the rights of the citizen, the relationship between the two, these very fundamental basic building blocks of good governance, uh, a stable, secure society, prosperity and equality for all citizens. These issues have not only not been achieved in our countries, they have never actually been seriously discussed within these countries in an open, honest way. And, and we postponed the inevitable unraveling and, and, and fragmentation of violence for, year, for decades and decades because of things like the Cold War, the oil boom, the Arab-Israeli conflict, and other uh, factors that played a role. But now um, these delaying factors have pretty much uh, been uh, pushed to the side, and we're seeing these weaknesses come to the fore. The fact that the situation in Syria and Iraq best highlights the problem should come as no surprise given a century of problematic history there. Give us that context. Syria and Iraq are probably the poster children of the worst examples of military-run, family-based, sectarian-anchored, narrowly managed rule um, in which small groups of people ending up ultimately with families like Saddam Hussein and his family, Hafiz and Bashar al-Assad and their family, Gaddafi and his family in Libya, Ali Abdullah Saleh and his family in uh, Yemen and others across the region, the family-run military-based rule uh, that ran these countries into the ground and created great corruption, great um, uh, mediocrity and incompetence in, in government systems. Uh, and this is relatively recent. In the last, I would say, 30 to 40 years, you know, from the 30s to the 80s, the Arab world was actually experiencing quite an impressive developmental momentum. And in most Arab countries, most people were generally experiencing improvements in their living conditions, and more importantly, they sensed that their children's future was going to be better even than theirs in terms of education, jobs, income, etc. So you never had popular uprisings in the Arab world except just one or two uh, occasions. But broadly speaking, you never had popular uprisings like we've seen recently. You had, you know, a colonel overthrowing a king or a colonel overthrowing another colonel, but not masses of people in the street because the masses were not so discontented. They were basically seeing their lives slowly getting better, even though they never really had political rights. But history shows us, especially if you look at you know, South Korea or Taiwan or Singapore, people will put up with lack of democratic rights if their living standards are improving, if their judicial systems are seen to be uh, fair, uh, uh, and if their fundamental life needs are met and their children have uh, promising future prospects. And that was the case in the Arab world from the 30s to the mid-80s. But after that, it kind of fell apart, and the military, family-run, security-based uh, government systems took over. And Syria and Iraq were the worst examples of that kind of abusive 
system, uh, and, and it's no surprise that uh, they are the epicenter uh, of state fragmentation, sectarian violence, foreign intervention, and now the move of the so-called global jihad has moved from Afghanistan, Pakistan to Syria, Iraq. Roughly simultaneous with that power shift were economic and demographic changes, even for some oil-rich nations, uh, leading to economic stagnation, uh, put, punishing income inequality, uh, problems even raising taxes for the general welfare. Talk about that. Well, uh, over the years, uh, from, say, the 50s to the uh, last decade, a lot of the oil income that came into the oil producers also found its way to non-oil producers like, you know, Egypt and Jordan and uh, Lebanon, Syria. They all benefited from the oil money, and therefore governments didn't really have to tax their people, and you had these systems that were rentier economies, they were called, um, where the government provided the basic needs of its people and, and, and basic security, and in return, the people provided full allegiance uh, with no political rights, but basically they had a decent material life, um, and, and that worked for about 40, 50 years or so. Uh, when the governments didn't have the money anymore, with neither the oil producers now nor the non-oil producers, when they ran out of the money they needed to play this game and carry out this uh, this bargain. It wasn't really a bargain because it wasn't really negotiated. It was an imposed system that the, uh, that the ruling elite said, this is how life is going to be in our countries, that citizens had no say in negotiating. This was not a social contract. It was not a negotiated contract. It was not a negotiated uh, bargain. It was an imposed order in which citizens had no say. But they went along with it because it but served so many of their fundamental material needs for many, many decades. But when the government ran out of money, uh, they started to raise uh, taxes, they raised fees, they lowered uh, subsidies, they uh, couldn't provide jobs for everybody, and this started to happen in the 1980s and 1990s. And then with the end of the Cold War, uh, you also had a drop in international aid from the big powers to their proxies and their allies and their surrogates in the region. Um, and then we've seen the last 35 years or so as a steady downward spiral of governments that could not maintain the developmental nationalist uh, thrust that they had uh, pretty much managed since the 1930s. Uh, and that's when you, when you started to see governments withdrawing from certain sectors and certain regions of society and people filling the gap with religious groups, uh, ethnic groups, sectarian groups, political groups, uh, criminal groups, foreign groups, uh, NGO groups, all kinds of people filled those voids that were created when governments simply pulled out of some poor areas or some rural areas and stopped delivering medical services or subsidized milk. Um, and other people stepped in and when the central authority and legitimacy and impact of the state started to disintegrate. And, and the uh, consequence of that now is uh, what we see in places like Yemen and Syria, Iraq and Libya, which is a free-for-all with lots of, you know, hundreds and hundreds of local uh, warlords or tribal leaders or military leaders or family traditional leaders, all kinds of uh, different systems where local authority is re-established according to different forms of legitimacies that are legitimate in the eyes of the 
local people, um, and, and, and this is coming at the expense of a coherent central state. Uh, whether the central state returns or not remains to be seen. I think it probably will, but with much more decentralization uh, within these countries. I was actually stunned beyond the, the decrease in sovereignty was the increase in population. I mean, the, the vastly increased number of people uh, that these governments had to try to deal with. Well, this is something that has been common all across the third world with very high population growth rates. Um, the Arab world had about 60 million people in 1930. Today it has around 400 million. I and mean, it's one of the highest growth rates in the world. And what happened was that population growth, fertility rates, which were about six or seven children per woman across the region average, remained high, though death rates declined because of better uh, health facilities, uh -huh. better nutrition, etc. So you continued in the 80s and 90s and teens to have high population growth uh, because of this situation. And this created uh, intense pressures because you had tens of millions of young people graduating from high school or college and, and there was no jobs uh, for them. Uh, now the, the fertility rate has declined significantly in the Arab world. It's, I think it's down to around 2.5 or 3% average. It varies because places like Yemen are still high, but um, it's gone way down uh, uh, in the last 25 years or so. Uh, but the, the net result is we have a population of about 400 million people in the Arab world today without the economic resources in the hands of most governments to provide the basic needs that people need or the competence or the um, legitimacy in many cases in the central governments to actually manage these economies in a way that could allow private sector and foreign investment and, and local investment to uh, develop in a way to create new jobs, to generate wealth in a way, for instance, that South Korea or Taiwan or Singapore or Malaysia or Indonesia have done. Uh, but we've never been able to find the mechanisms to do that uh, within the Arab world. After decades of these trends, you write, came four early warning signs that all was not well among the citizenry. What was the first of those? Well, it's chronologically, I would say the first one was the uh, rise of the uh, Muslim Brotherhood in the 1970s, which happened right after the discrediting of the old nationalist regimes and the defeat of the 1967 war with Israel, and then the... Um, uh, oil boom that happened in the early 70s, which was beneficial in many ways, it generated money, but it created intense uh, high inflation and real serious pressures on family budgets. Uh, and that led to a lot of corruption. So all of these things together from the uh, early 70s to the late 70s. So by the end of the 70s, the Muslim Brother was emerging, the Muslim Brotherhood movement and its various offshoots, which is a peaceful, nonviolent um, Islamist uh, political group, religious, political, social group, they emerge as the main uh, expression of discontent and opposition to the, to the government. So they couldn't really oppose the governments because they weren't really peaceful, normal elections, free elections. But they emerged clearly as a uh, expression of discontent. So that was probably the early sign that uh, was so clear in the, in the late 1970s. And when elections were held in a few places like Jordan and Yemen and Sudan and Morocco and Kuwait, these guys always did the best. Uh, they, even in rigged elections, they did very well. Um, 
So that was an early sign. Another early sign around the same time was starting uh, a process which continues today of serious immigration of the smartest, best, and the brightest young educated people in the Arab world who uh, simply left and went to the West in most cases. A few of them went to places like Dubai, which are you know, in the Arab world, but not really off the Arab world. Dubai is a kind of a, it's a, it's a wonderful place and very impressive in many ways, but it's not a normal Arab country. It's like a, a duty-free shop at an airport that has expanded to, to a huge scale and is very dynamic and creative and lots of fun, but it's not a normal country. It's, a, it's, a, it's an unusual modern phenomenon. And many people went there because they could get work and they could live normally, again, with no political rights. Um, but the mass immigration was the second sign with when tens of thousands of your very smartest, brightest people left and stayed away. Uh, I think that was something that uh, uh, people should have uh, should have caught uh, early on, um, but they didn't. Um, and then you had uh, other issues like um, the um, the expression of mass discontent in uh, society that was uh, expressed through people withdrawing their allegiance to the state, to the central government, and following subnational groups, whether it's Hezbollah or Hamas or the Muslim Brothers or a tribal group or an ethnic group like a Kurdish uh, party or something like that. Uh, and, and many of these uh, uh, subnational groups became really powerful players. So Hezbollah is as strong as the Lebanese government. Uh, you have groups in Yemen, the Houthis, for instance, are you know challenging the old central government. So the, the decline of the monopoly of power and authority and identity and, and sovereign legitimacy in the hands of central governments was a third sign. And then uh, I think the fourth big sign was the um, uprisings in 2000 and. Uh, 11, the Arab uprisings that started in Tunisia and Egypt and other places, these were, these were extraordinary phenomena where tens of millions of people were out in the streets and then hundreds of, you know, over 100 million people supported these uh, demonstrators all across the Arab world. Um, they didn't succeed for various reasons, but so these, the, the, these signs, I think, and there's other uh, signs as well, but these were the most glaring ones that should have alerted Everybody, whether it's local governments, uh, private sector people, foreign governments, whoever, should have seen these early warning signs. And there's something wrong in these societies. Societies don't behave like this when everything is going well. But nobody paid attention, and this is what uh, has led us to the situation we are in today. Talk more about the explosive mixture of despair and defiance. Some of the statistics that help explain it. You know, there's so many sectors in society that one could look at to find statistical evidence. Uh, the, the, the most important one is simply to listen to citizens themselves as they express themselves, for instance, in public opinion polling, which we started to get in the Arab world about uh, maybe 15 years ago. We started to get serious, credible polling by local people as well as international people like Gallup, and Pew, and other people, as well as many really serious, good local Posters. And, and people started um, in the 1990s, early 2000s, there was a clear expression of um, concern, uh, worry among uh, large numbers of people in the Arab world 
uh, about their own future well-being. You know, more and more people started to say that they were worried about their future, that they didn't think that the country was going in the right direction, that they're going to be worse off in five years than they are uh, today. That was that was um, one sign. Another one was the uh, sign of uh, loss of uh, loss of faith and trust that citizens had in their central government institutions, except usually for the armed forces, which people tend to respect. But you had like 50% of people on average in, in many Arab countries, and in some places going up to 60 or 65%, saying they don't trust, uh, they don't find the parliament credible, they don't trust the media, they don't uh, believe the political parties are serious, they don't... Uh, see the judicial system as being impartial and they don't trust it. So when you get large numbers of people expressing uh, distrust in their own government systems that are supposed to serve them, uh, that's a bad sign. And then you have things like, uh, to me, the single most troubling uh, statistical piece of evidence is the education outcomes. Um, recent analyses using uh, international testing standards, the tests that are done all over the world of primary and secondary school students show that somewhere around 45 to 47 percent on average of primary and secondary school students, mid-primary, mid-secondary across the Arab world, are simply not learning anything. They don't know how to read and write and they can't do basic numeracy. They're, they're in school but they're not learning anything and they're going to drop out. And uh, you have uh, about half the kids in school not learning anything. And you're talking here of tens of millions of people. There's something like 75 million young people in school in the Arab world, primary and secondary school. Um, if half of these people are learning nothing, that's like 30, 35 million people who are going to be doomed to a future of uh, unemployment, of, of crime, of despair, whatever. Uh, you have about 25 million people, more or less, who are out of school, who should be in school, primary and secondary school kids. 25 million are not in school for wars, reasons of wars, reasons of poverty, reasons of uh, simply they drop out because they're not learning anything, they're wasting their time. They, they, uh, and therefore, we have a huge structural problem, which is that um, tens of millions of young Arab men and women are not learning are, uh, and are then doomed to a lifetime of poverty, vulnerability, marginalization, and suffering. And they're never going to be able to do anything in their lives more than uh, sweep somebody's floor or wash dishes or uh, clean car windows and, and do menial work like that. And, and the other thing that corresponds to that, the other data uh, point, is that the um, informal labor rate in the Arab world, meaning people who work without a contract, without a minimum wage, without health insurance, a pension payment, informal labor, people who just work for five or seven dollars a day or something. Um, these informal labor rates are sometimes 40 and 50 percent in, in different Arab countries. It's an enormous figure uh, of uh, hundreds, uh, tens of millions of uh, workers in Arab countries, some of them are farmers, some of them are uh, day laborers, they're working uh, without any kind of protection, any kind of pension, any kind of health insurance, minimum wage. And, and these are the people who create this big underclass of poor, vulnerable, and increasingly desperate people. And this is what drives immigration, it drives recruitment to terrorism, it drives radical movements. 
uh, it drives criminal activity. Uh, when you get tens of millions of desperate people who have no hope, uh, this is what happens. The uprisings of 2011, by the way, uh, were an expression of this. A lot of people who were not necessarily poor and desperate, middle-class people, but what they shared, the middle-class people shared with the low-income people, is that they all saw that they had no chance of improving their life prospects, that where they were is where they were going to be forever, and their children and the next 10 generations were all going to be stuck in the situation that they were in. And if you had a middle-class life, you were, say, a school teacher or a bus driver, and you, maybe you had a contract, maybe you had uh, health insurance, you could, you know, put up with it. But if everything around you was becoming worse and there was more corruption and prices were rising and um, jobs were more scarce, your kids were never going to be able to find a job. Even middle-class people uh, with jobs were feeling a kind of desperation about the future. And, of course, lower income and poor people and unemployed people were completely desperate. And, and this is what has driven so much of the uh, extremism and fragmentation, violence, uh, and other terrible things we see around the region. And talk about the factor of foreign intervention, economic and military, especially now Russia and Iran, the U.S. and some Euro allies, feeding the war machine whatever their intent, you say. Foreign intervention um, has been with us for uh, well, it's been with us since Alexander the Great, you know, over 2,500 years ago almost. But uh, it's really been with us since Napoleon around 220 years ago. And um, Western powers were primarily the culprits, the British, the French, and then later the Americans took over. And recently you've had the Russians, the Iranians, the Turks, other foreign powers in the region and nearby doing what the British and the French and the Americans have long done, which is to bomb us and to do regime change and to intervene militarily uh, inside Arab countries according to their own uh, desires to maintain their strategic advantage. So the Iranians are doing what they're doing in Syria. Hezbollah is involved in Syria, the Russians, because they want to protect their own interests. And they don't particularly care about the Syrian people or, or the international law or anything like that. And, of course, the French, the British, the Americans have done this for, for decades. Uh, and the consequence is that um, militarism and political violence, uh, shooting, killing, bombing, uh, drone killing, assassinating people, have become absolutely routine and, in a way, legitimate. And they've been legitimized by, you know, George Bush's war in Iraq and Tony Blair and what the Russians have done now and the Iranians and Syria and what the Saudis have done in Yemen. And, you know, this is, everybody is to blame. There aren't any uh, groups of countries that are worse than others, uh, Arab countries and um, foreign countries. Uh, and then the, uh, the, one of the biggest problems has been the impact of the Arab-Israeli conflict. For the last uh, 70 years almost, the constant warfare between Israel and the Arab world, Israeli occupation, colonization. Um, the Arab-Israeli conflict is not on the front pages today as much as it used to be, uh, but it remains the biggest uh, force for radicalization uh, and destabilization um, in the region because it's been there for decades and decades and decades and it has many indirect impacts uh, on conditions in Arab countries and, and leaderships. For instance, if, if the Arab-Israeli conflict had been solved in 1960, you would not have had the Iranian-Israeli uh, face-off on the whole nuclear issue. That would not, probably not have happened 
um, or the Turkish-Israeli uh, tensions that happened. Um, but the Arab-Israeli conflict wasn't solved, and it continues to be a problem. And it's just one dimension of the military, foreign military interventions uh, inside the Arab countries. So the, the real dilemma now is that everybody's doing it. It used to be before only the Americans, the British, the French, and the Israelis. Now it's everybody, the Iranians, the Russians, the Turks, the Saudis, the Arabs doing it to each other. Uh, and this is another sign of the breakdown of sovereign authority. Uh, and when you don't have credible, real sovereignty exercised in your own country by your own people, you open the door for internal groups to take over, as well as external groups, foreign powers, to intervene and do whatever they want. And this is what we're experiencing. The problem of, of non-state and even sub-state intervention. Well, you have that happening at the same time. That started again in the 1970s, really, when you started to have the first signs of the inability of central governments to continue their welfare state kind of development where central governments, for instance, in the 50s and 60s and, and early 70s, were pretty much guaranteeing everybody a, a job if they graduated from high school or college. And, uh, but they stopped being able to do that in the 1970s and 80s for different reasons, population growth, uh, oil price reduction, and uh, many other reasons. But when governments started to feel they were not able to maintain the developmental momentum, they withdrew from different quarters of society, from physical geographical areas like poor areas or rural areas, and also from certain sectors. So, for instance, most governments turned over uh, telecommunications to the private sector. So most of the telecommunications now, phone systems, are privatized. Um, delivery of water in many Arab countries is totally privatized by local groups and international groups like Nestle and others. So you have this uh, problem of central governments being unable to maintain their developmental uh, activities, which were quite impressive uh, from the 30s to the 70s, but they couldn't maintain them. And therefore, as they withdrew from areas of society, non-state actors uh, stepped in, and, and there's so many of them that have done this. Some are religious groups like the Muslim Brothers, some are tribal groups uh, in tribal countries like, say, Jordan or Kuwait or other places. Some are ideological groups, political groups in places like uh, Lebanon. Um, and then you have uh, um, nationalist groups or Kurdish groups or Druze groups or people with national identities, um, and, and all kinds of non-state non or sub-state uh, groups have uh, stepped in and filled that vacuum because uh, people, you know, they need to have their basic needs met. If the central government collapses, if you take Somalia, for instance, which the central government there collapsed like 20 years ago, um, and it's still pretty iffy, um, people get on with their life. You can go to Somalia and get a cell phone and get a bank credit, and the central government isn't doing any of that. Uh, because other people step in. Um, and, and people learned in the Middle East through about 6,000 years of nonstop um, communal life, they learned that, you know, that if the central government doesn't provide something, somebody else will. And if that somebody else provides something you need, whether it's food or security or, uh, or health care, uh, then, you know, you accept that from them as long as they're reasonably legitimate. And, and, and this creates new forms of 
legitimacies and service delivery groups, which then creates new forms of shared sovereignties. And this is one of the great stories of the Arab world, which hasn't been sufficiently appreciated, that we now have multiple sovereignties within individual countries. Uh, and they're still trying to figure this out, how to make this work. The most uh, extreme examples are places like Syria, where you have probably uh, you know, estimates of about a thousand different local groups, armed groups, tribal groups, communal groups, uh, military groups, whatever. There's about a thousand different people working to provide services and order and security uh, at the local level mostly or regional level. Um, as well as the government and ISIS and Nostra and um, all these other groups, the bigger ones. Um, so this is a fascinating new uh, phase that the Arab world is going through as a consequence of the uh, inability of the traditional centralized state authority, the central government, to actually you know, provide for the needs of its people and and promote sustained national development in a way that, say, the South Korean government did or the, um, or the French government did or other governments have done. Uh, many Arab governments haven't been able to do this. And now we have this situation of this shared, multiple overlapping sovereignties. Sometimes the different groups collaborate very well. For, so in Lebanon, for instance, Hezbollah and the government work closely together on security because they're both afraid of the threat of ISIS and people like that. So these different groups are not necessarily antagonistic to one another. In Iraq, you see the same thing, different groups, uh, Shiite groups and Sunni groups and tribal groups, uh, all working with the central government to fight ISIS. And because of this larger complex situation, you're right, uh, victory against ISIS on the ground would not reverse uh, many or any of the underlying causes that encouraged its birth and expansion or, or even the 2011 uprisings. Well, this is the real uh, challenge and dilemma that the people in the region face and the people in the world face because ISIS is, and, and, and uh, Al-Qaeda and groups like this are a threat globally with their terror uh, activities. Uh, so if we defeat ISIS, which we should and we will, by attacking them in Raqqa and Mosul and driving them out of their headquarters, that's going to happen in the next six months. Um, and um, we've already seen a significant decline in the area that ISIS controls. But once that happens, if we don't address the underlying drivers, the causes that push ordinary people to uh, join ISIS or support it or to like it or to send it money or to just see it as a legitimate protector of their interests, um, we're going to have the same situation but manifested and configured in different forms. So I can't tell you what's going to happen when ISIS is defeated, but we still have 50% of, high of uh, primary and secondary school kids in the Arab world not being able to read and write, 50% uh, of labor being informal labor with no protection, poverty and, and uh, inequality vastly increasing across the Arab region, no political uh, pluralism developing in any serious way other than Tunisia, uh, and, and therefore mass desperation that's Im impacting, I would estimate, somewhere around 150 million out of the 400 million Arabs are living in really desperate um, situations. Uh, where they they cannot really m be sure that they have enough money to feed their kids or house them or provide heating for them in the winter. Uh, I can't tell you, nobody can tell you what 
are the consequences of that. But what we can say is looking back over the last 30 years, the consequences have been a mass uh, protest movements often denominated in religious terms or tribal terms and some places ideological terms, in some cases leading to um, extremist movements like Al-Qaeda and ISIS uh, terror groups. But these are terror groups because they carry out terror activities. But the reason they attract supporters is because they are to their supporters, they are answering the needs of their supporters, of their people, uh, by providing jobs, providing security, providing stability, providing hope, providing order, providing a sense of, um, of a role uh, for people in their lives, a way for them to be involved in running their societies, even if they're running a criminal activity like ISIS is doing. To their own people, they are providing an important service which the state uh, has long relinquished and international forces have long abandoned. Um, and, and this is why it's so important to see ISIS not only as a criminal terrorist group, uh, but as a symptom of the underlying structural, political, economic, and social, and now increasingly environmental uh, problems across the Arab world. If people can't get water uh, or sufficient uh, food from ir irrigated fertile lands, uh, you're going to get more and more desperate people, and desperate people do desperate things, including trying to swim to Europe and drowning on the way, or joining uh, criminal groups, or joining corrupt government systems, or joining ISIS and, and Qaeda. And this, the, there's many options that people have, um, and the common denominator is that they they have they look at these options only because they've reached a point of desperation in their lives. Um, and and this, is, this is what has been going on for about 30, 40 years, with still today, amazingly, still today, no serious focusing on these underlying issues, either among Arab governments or among major international supporters of the Arab governments. Just a few final questions. Do you see uh, an ISIS defeat on the ground, at least reducing the level of terrorist violence it instigates or inspires, far beyond Iraq and Syria, or actually increasing it, as some other guests on this podcast have suggested? Uh, it's hard to tell right now, because ISIS is still a relatively new phenomenon. But the uh, track record of the last 30 years, which suggests probably uh, alternating periods of more terror and less terror. Terror doesn't really achieve anything, uh, it, but it's just an expression of mass hysteria and discontent and exasperation and desperation. Um, it, it never achieves uh, its goals, except in, in some areas where people who are occupied by a foreign power use uh, suicide attacks to, like, for instance, people fighting the Israelis and uh, South Lebanon or in Gaza, and they drove the Israelis out because uh, the um, occupation was illegal and the cost was too high. Uh, so, so people argue whether that's terror or that's legitimate uh, self-defense against an occupying force in the same way that the, you know, the George Washington fought against the British. Is that terror or is that uh, national liberation? So that's an argument that, <laughs> for a different day. But the, um, the fact is that, that vi political violence or terrorism rarely achieves uh, its goals, and in this case certainly won't, because it doesn't uh, really have a, a clear capacity to 
solve people's problems in the long term. In the short run, it attracts tens of thousands of people who go there and join the Islamic State. And other people around the regions, they like it. They say, well, we, we support it because it's fighting for us and whatever. And we understand why this happens. Um, but in the long run, it is not uh, going to solve anything. Neither will uh, Al-Qaeda. So these people will be defeated militarily but they are not primarily a military phenomenon. They are, not, they are a political and socioeconomic phenomenon, and they need to be uh, fought by addressing the underlying drivers that give birth to them and uh, give rise to them and, and sustain them. And that's not happening. Um, so when you look at recent you know, terror attacks in the United States, we recently had the attacks in New York and New Jersey, and before that, San Bernardino, and the different places. Um, small, relatively small uh, attacks, but these are, you know, traumatic, and they cause people um, a, a lot of fear. Well, these kinds of uh, events will probably continue. Um, they don't actually cause a lot of damage. 9-11, of course, was different. Uh, but we, we, those kind of big attacks are unlikely to uh, to happen, but you'll probably have a continuation of the of the small attacks by small numbers of people. Um, and and the only solution to these kinds of events is a longer term political, social, economic response uh, to the reasons why people become radicalized. Um, and this is where I think the war on terror has been uh, terribly, terribly uh, deficient. They've been very good at military action and killing people. But in the last 15 years, Al-Qaeda has tripled in size and ISIS has grown. And so there's something wrong where the U.S. focuses on its military prowess, which is what Obama does and other American leaders do all the time. We're going to get them and we're going to attack them. And, and the, the presidential candidates all say this, we're going to go after them. That's easy. That's easy to do. And the U.S. and others have done that. But it doesn't seem to have solved the problem because the terror groups like ISIS and Qaeda and others only have gotten bigger and have expanded. So there needs to be a much more serious, uh, rational understanding of why these groups have come into being, what they actually represent, and therefore uh, how to defeat them and to defeat the underlying problems. And one of the underlying problems is that all the Arab governments, except Tunisia today, are dictatorships where ordinary citizens have no rights, uh, and economic opportunities are getting worse and worse. Corruption is rampant. And these systems are uh, enthusiastically supported by foreign countries. Uh, recently, you had the two candidates, Clinton and uh, Trump, meeting with the Egyptian uh, president, Sisi, uh, in New York. When he was in New York recently, they both met with him and made a big deal out of, you know, we're meeting with the Egyptian president. Well, you know, Egypt is, a, is, a, is the worst example of how military rule, almost uninterrupted since 1952, has driven this once great country into the gutter. And Egypt is a mess today. And, of course, a lot of the leaders of Qaeda came out of the Muslim Brotherhood movement in Egypt that was radicalized in the 70s and 80s. Um, so I think there needs to be a much more honest appreciation in the U.S. and in the Western world um, for two things. One is supporting dictators in the Arab world only creates more radical movements and terrorism and fragmentation and instability and chaos. Um, and the second is that um, the actions of foreign governments, whether the U.S. or England in attacking Iraq or uh, now attacking people with drones all over the place or the Israeli government with its uh, uh, 
settlements and colonization, or the Saudi government in Yemen, or the Iranians, foreign governments' actions in these countries create a backlash. And almost every one of these guys um, in the U.S. who has carried out a terror attack in San Bernardino or New York or Florida or wherever it may be, almost every one of them, when you dig down into their story, they went over to Afghanistan or they went to Syria or they went to Pakistan or Iraq and they were really angry at what they saw and they came back and they did this. So there is a clear, direct link in many ways between the impact of foreign policies of countries like the U.S. or England or Iran or Russia or Israel with the radicalization of ordinary people who become uh, terrorists. And until we understand that process and are honest enough to look at that whole cycle, um, we're never going to solve the problem of terrorism. We're only going to minimize it to a certain extent, but it'll go underneath. And, and what will happen is that Western countries will be protected to a large extent from major attacks, and more and more problems will emerge within the Arab-Asian region, which is the epicenter of this problem. All right, a final question going to back where going back to where we started Tunisia. Are there one or two major lessons to be learned from the way uh, they achieved a positive outcome uh, uh, the the way they the way they solved the underlying problems that we've been talking about to produce what is so far a stable democracy? The lessons of Tunisia are very important because it's the only country that uh, actually made the transition to a uh, pluralistic, uh, democratic, constitutional system. Uh, it's still a bit shaky here and there, but they seem to be hanging in there and the and progress is, uh, is moving forward. And the lessons are simply that you need to have all the people engaged, including the Islamists, so you can't um, refuse to talk to people like the Muslim Brothers or Hezbollah or Hamas. Uh, you can't leave anybody out. Everybody should be allowed to participate in a peaceful political process, renouncing violence. Um, and second of all, uh, you need to consult your people. These, these processes of um, restructuring government systems like the Tunisians have done, these have to be done through deep consultation with ordinary citizens, and the Tunisians were able to do it uh, using their labor unions, using their political parties, using other mechanisms. They spent two years uh, widely discussing the new constitution and, and issues of women's rights and religion, the role of religion, Arabism and Arab-Israeli stuff and relations with the West, and all the big sticker items were, were deeply, widely discussed, and they ended up with a constitution that had genuine... Uh, consensus and therefore had legitimacy and therefore had efficacy and, cons and persists. That process has only happened in Tunisia so far. The Egyptians started it and then they freaked out and the army came back in. The Yemenis, the Libyans, others have started it and then they collapsed for different reasons. Um, so the lessons of Tunisia I think are very clear and they're not really only about Tunisia, they're about human nature. Uh, you can see these lessons in Chile, you can see them in Indonesia, you can see them all over the world. As you, you need to be inclusive, you need to be participatory, you need to have accountability, and you need to basically anchor sovereignty in the will and the rights of your own people, not in a foreign power uh, in another country, but in your own uh, people and their will and their desires and what they 
what, how they define uh, their national identity and how their country should be run. I think this will happen across the region. It's going to take uh, a bit of time, but certainly it'll spread to other countries in the same way that, you know, Poland made a breakthrough in the, in the 1980s in uh, Europe, and then 10 years later the whole Soviet system collapsed and many of them became democratic. And the same way, I think, in the Arab world, Tunis made the initial breakthrough and uh, and the... Uh, the rest of the Arab world will follow soon. Rami Khoury, thank you. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. Beirut-based columnist and commentator Rami G. Khoury is also a senior fellow of the Isam Faris Institute for Public Policy and International Affairs at the American University of Beirut and a non-resident senior fellow at the Harvard Kennedy School Middle East Initiative. His published works include For Those Who Share a Will to Live, Perspectives on a Just Peace in the Middle East, and The View from East of the Jordan. For the new fall issue of World Policy Journal, History's Ghosts, he wrote the article headlined The Citizen and the State, The Decline of Sovereignty in the Arab World. Also featured in the new WPJ Fall issue, History's Ghosts, you'll find articles on what lessons from history keep being forgotten, on silencing the echoes of Tiananmen, and on the painful legacy of Canada's residential Indian schools. World Policy on Air is a production of World Policy Journal at the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. Editor Christopher Shea, Managing Editor Yaffa Frederick, Podcast Producer Matthew DeMello. I'm David Alpern. 